Hello, welcome to Cherry Beckert's GovCom podcast, where we discuss current government contracting trends, compliance matters, and best practices to guide federal contractors forward. My name is Eric Poppy, a managing director in Cherry Beckert's Government Contract Services Group, and with me today is Jacqueline and Jeff from our team. And you know, so first, Jeff, Jacqueline, thank you for joining today. Absolutely. Um, so I'm pumped that you guys are here and we're having this discussion on um, one of our favorite topics that we talk about with clients and um, and other government and government contracts in general is timekeeping. You know, we get questions all the time about timekeeping practices, what's required, daily time entry, weekly time entry. You know, how do we need to submit? What's the government expectations? Um, you know, especially I feel like we get a lot of questions on timekeeping if it's a commercial organization and they're just getting into government contracting and we they have that oh uh, oh no moment when we say yes you need to do daily time time entry and submission on a weekly basis and you can see they're like deers in the headlights uh, just oh my gosh like what's this impact going to be a culture i'm going to have a revolt by my employees so you know we wanted to i wanted to talk through the time just timekeeping in general and get your um, opinions with both your former DCA backgrounds and kind of just talk through and level set uh, what are the expectations for a, 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 uh, an adequate timekeeping system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think one of the biggest concerns we kind of hear from clients is that it's it's a big culture shock, you know, having to record time daily at specific task levels and really kind of getting into the nitty gritty that they haven't had to do before can be kind of a big shock. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons we get a lot of questions on this is that FAR and DFARS really just doesn't have a lot of detail in timekeeping. Um, and FAR, there's actually no specific timekeeping requirement. Um, there's no regulations specific to timekeeping. It kind of falls under the allowability clause, um, stating that a contractor is responsible for accounting for costs appropriately and maintaining records, um, and that they're adequate to demonstrate those costs claimed have been incurred. Uh, are allocable to the contract and comply with applicable cost principles in the subpart part, part 31 for allowability. Now, DFARS does have a timekeeping system requirement, but it is extremely general. It's as simple as saying there should be a timekeeping system that identifies employees' labor by intermediate or final cost objectives. Now, the FAR and the DFARS might be very, very general. What I can tell you from my experience at DCA, and I'm sure Jacqueline, same same thing for you, is that DCAA has several requirements that they look for. They have a lot of specifics and a lot of details. Um, several of them are outlined in their DCAA manual for information for contractors that they have on their public site um, that kind of outlines some of the things that they're looking for. And we're actually gonna go through some of those today to really kind of give you a good idea of what is the government looking for when they're evaluating your timekeeping system. All right, so first thing we want to make sure that we're having written policies in place or being able to actually describe what's occurring for an auditor to be able to document your procedures. So the employee should be able to receive an initial timekeeping training at the time of hire and annual refresher trainings to make sure that um, we're still in compliance with the timekeeping procedures in case any changes that occurred. Um, this is typically an area that's hit pretty heavily by auditors with uh, requesting training records, completion certificates, or sign-in sheets, so we can be able to show that the trainings occurred. So, well, so from your experience, 
you know, what are some of the key components for an adequate timekeeping system? Like one of the things that first pops into my head is ensuring proper segregation of responsibility of labor activities of supervisors are uh, accountable for meeting budgets, you know, who's the one initiating the time records, you know, supervisors are prohibited from um, completing an employee's timesheet, also controls on who gets access to certain charge codes. And all of course, and all of this, of course, should be addressed in um, the policies and procedures. You know, any other uh, elements that just jump off? Yeah, I think there's a couple other. And just to kind of jump on the, the segregation of responsibilities, you know, this is one that you, you definitely need to outline in your policies and procedures um, for some of those unique situations. And it can be as simple as stating something as, you know, including but not limited to, and then kind of describing those specific unique scenarios that might happen, like long-term leave, um, sick leave, I think parental leave care for paternity and maternity leave is a big one that's kind of coming up lately at a lot of companies are now offering um, where, you know, parents are getting anywhere from six to 12 weeks off. So some of those unique situations, as long as you document in your policies, you can typically be covered. Um, one of the other big ones I think we get quite a few questions on is hearing the government term of total hours worked or the total hours worked approach. Um, so we can talk a little bit about why the government actually cares about that. I know we routinely get questions, contractors reaching out, um, like you mentioned earlier, Eric, they might be a commercial entity that is now going to be picking up a government contract at maybe one specific location. And, you know, who needs to charge time? Should just my direct employees be responsible for charging time? Um, and, you know, typically we always kind of let them know about the total hours worked approach where all hours worked are recorded on the timesheet. Um, so this really helps with being able to determine an effective hourly labor rate and fairness of the wage for the work performed. You know, the government always say it's also necessary because labor costs and associated overheads are affected by total hours, not just the paid hours worked. So therefore, any labor rate computations and labor overhead costs should reflect total hours. Um, you know, a good. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, just to jump right in. I feel like that's one of the big things that. A lot of if you're new to government contracting, you connect the dots when you state that is like, you know, it's not just direct labor and those folks who work on the contracts, but. <clears throat> those inputs to your pools, you know, that is very dependent on labor too. And then you might be overestimating or underestimating, or the worry is over accumulating or under accumulating costs to then final application to final cost objectives. If that labor, pra if those labor practices aren't, you know, buttoned up. Yeah, that's good definitely. Point. Yep. And I think as a best practice too, um, you know, this is where a lot of that culture shock comes in. You have a lot of indirect employees that, you know, Hey, I do indirect work. Why do I need to record my time? I do my eight hours a day. You know, do we really need to track what what it's going to? Um, so I think really management showing a top down ethical approach of showing the importance of doing this really kind of does help set the tone. Um, it really does make a difference in that big culture shock that you might experience. So what about daily time entry? We hear folks all the time saying, do I really have to do daily time entry? What are your all's thoughts with that? Ideally, yes, we do want to be able to see that we're accumulating project costs at the appropriate rates. So they're typically wanting to make sure we have policies and procedures that are currently in place to address your direct versus your indirect times. So we have direct project codes should be able to account for specific projects to the level required by the government contracts, which could be task order or individual CLIN, ACORN, or lower levels if required. And then indirect cost codes such as the holidays, the paid time off, like Jeff had touched on earlier, vacations, leave without pay, and jury duty. It's usually a nice one too. 
Yeah. I think a good thing to remember on this too is you don't want, you typically don't want your employees, your direct employees to have access to every single code that's in the system. You want to have either some control set up in the system um, where it will only let them access the specific codes that they're authorized to work on, or that an email is sent from a supervisor and someone in management directing them to charge these specific codes. These are the codes that they are authorized to work on. Um, so that can be either a control in the system or as you know, simple as retaining that record of email. And I know when DCAA performs a floor check, that's typically some one of the questions that they ask when they go out is, you know, show me your authorization to be able to work on this. You know, routinely that's either a, a statement of work that shows basically their their level of expertise or their actual position that's required for it or an email from their supervisor stating hey this is our new charge code for the project and your scope of work yeah and, and, and to that point too the expectation for that auditor in the floor check would be daily entry um even though to your point earlier there really isn't any guidance in the far and far that says you have to do it daily the expectation is that the further you get out the less you remember and you should be doing entry on a daily basis um now, well, the floor check will go through the day before when you go in to check mm -hmm. their timesheets because you'll say, OK, let's see what you were charging project wise. What were you working on when I arrived? Because you'll go back in and check those timesheets when the pay period ends. You'll want to make sure that the time's documented from the day before as well. So it's all being tracked. So it. Yep, that's a very good point. Um, you know, we have a little bit of time left, so I want to kind of pivot a little bit to what about so you submit your time, your supervisor approves, but what about changes? Any thoughts on timesheet changes? Yeah, I think it's definitely an area that's that's kind of looked at under the microscope. So typically you want to have procedures in place to identify the original time charge, the corrected time charge, and then documentation from the employee and the supervisor indicating their concurrence with the change. Um, so you can do this a couple of different ways. I know some companies out there still utilize paper timesheets. There's others that use electronic. Typically in those electronic systems, um, there is some sort of module or ability to be able to do this with an audit trail, but you wanna make sure um, that the employee will either have a pre-selected job code they can charge or be able to select the code applicable for the job being performed from that larger list. If a change needs to be made, the employee should be the one making the change and they should identify why it needs to be made. At that point, they would sign it and then ship it off to their supervisor. And then the supervisor would also review and approve. Now, if it's on a paper timesheet, that would be a physical change that would be made to the timesheet. So if you don't want any whiteout on there, you don't want things being erased, you would kind of lose your audit trail when you do that. So the recommendation is typically that you would put a single line through, so strike through the time charge that you have, or if it's an error, whatever you need to change, and then have it initialed by the employee, the supervisor, and then make sure it's dated. All very good points. Uh, you know, so what about now in this you know post-COVID world about you have people working on-site, off-site, remote, you know, uh, you have people all over the some some companies have people all over the world working on contracts um, and they are getting on at all hours of the day. Any thoughts on timekeeping practices and in the current and, and how that applies to the current work environment? All right, so normally we need to make sure that our policies and procedures that are in place are currently going to address our in-office remote work and hybrid situations. 
So we need to make sure our in-office will require defining commute distances and whether that's included in their workday. The work from home, there should be an adequate internal control and written policy and procedure outlining the contractor's work from home agreements need to be written. Um, for the between the employer and the employee and procedures on travel and what constitutes travel versus commute. And in the end, the policies and procedures should be reasonable for both the employee and the employer. And All if we have hybrid, back. we need to make sure both are covered in that portion. That's good. Yeah. All comes back to those policies and procedures. Um, that's, that's always the key. And I guess for the last question, uh, we get this question. We've Cherry Becker received this question all the time. How long should we keep records for? How long should we keep timesheets for? Uh, any any thoughts? Yeah, I think this one's um, currently kind of being debated. So, you know, for my time at DCA, it's been a while since I performed a floor check myself, but there was always, you know, the criteria that we heard then. But I mean, so policies, you should have your own policies and procedures that are written to address file storage and retention record requirements. And that can usually vary based on the contract, the specific terms or conditions that are in there, um, the specific FAR sites. It's typically recommended, though, that timesheets, you know, this is current, um, two to three years. And I think there was a recent ASBA case that came up where this was kind of debated on, you know, how long should it be? You know, I think at the time when I was at DCAA, it was kind of always based on final payment at, at the contract that you needed this, what kind of started the clock for retaining certain records. And now I believe it's, you know, somewhat up in the air. And I think this is one of the ones we kind of plan on talking about in detail down the road due to that recent ASBCA case to really kind of get into some of the details of what are the specific requirements. Because I do believe, do you remember, Eric, I believe the contractor won in that case. Yep, the contractor won um, and the... Guidance was you didn't have to keep the records for as long as the government was asking. And that was double shot was the case. Um, and it was back in 2022, the, the decision. Um, but the guidance between the far, different clauses in the FAR is two years, three years. Um, and then uh, then there's then it's handling, I think, auditor expectation as well. Uh, I think we can dive into the details there and maybe we bring on a, a legal expert um, and when we go into that in more detail. But you know, Jeff, Jacqueline, that is all the time we have today. So I really do appreciate um, you all using your expertise and diving in on some of the timekeeping requirements because I know we have a lot of questions on that. So I thank you both for joining and thank you everyone who listened to our GovCom podcast today. Please make sure to um, follow us on the socials and also, um, you know, keep and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get that on Spotify, Apple or, or wherever else. And thank you and have a good day.